Have you ever received an extravagant gift? I mean, one of those unprecedented, unpredictable, uh, draw-dropping gifts. The one that, that kind of harkened back, that elicited that, that, that child in you on Christmas morning with just the excitement of whatever the gift was. Have you ever received a gift that was no way that you could ever give a gift back to that person with that extravagance? Uh, one of the first gifts that Jesse gave to me was one of those gifts. It was a, a signed Ken Griffey Jr. bat that he actually used in a game. Uh, it's part of my shrine for Ken Griffey Jr. that I have. And so I was just shocked by that and that moment of that gift. Right, and so that was one of those jaw-dropping, extravagant gifts and like knowing like I can never give a gift like that to my wife. I, I did give her once Tom Brady pajamas. Is that, I mean, not ones he actually wore, the ones he was selling, like that one. <laughs> Although, uh, but another gift, right, as another gift in 2007, when, uh, Jessie, her first car was a 1987 Honda Accord hatchback, white, right? fantastic car but it came to a, a period of time when all cars come and you're like man we're just having to do repair after repair and what's the, what's the pros and cons here in the midst of that uh, knowing this that we are a two-car family our friends who were moving decided you know what you can have our car that we're trying to sell and they just gave a car to us in a time which we, we didn't want to buy a car didn't have the means to buy a car that's an extravagant gift that one might say that's, a, that's an unexpected gift but it's an abundant gift and all of us love to receive gifts. But all of us also learn that we love to give gifts. And the older we get, we realize the joy is not in the receiving of the gift, but in the giving of the gift. We love to give thoughtful and extravagant gifts. We love to get that response of awe and wow and breathless moments as people open up their gifts. And we give those types of gifts who gets the credit? Who gets the praise? And who gets the glory? Well, we do, right? And that's one of the reasons we give those gifts. Because we get adulation, we get praise. We're like, wow, thanks. People fall over it. And we like that. That is a good feeling. It's not bad to receive thanks. But that's why we do it, because we want to get the glory, the credit. This is a truth. It's not an opinion. This is a fundamental fact of the universe. God is the gift giver. And God is the ultimate gift. That's a truth. You just need to sit and realize that fact. God is the gift giver and he is the ultimate gift. In James 1.17, every good gift and perfect gift from above is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. All glory belongs to him. Period. End of story. Well, we're going to dive into, though, this extravagant gift-giving God. This extravagant God that gives all the good gifts. And let's look into this story, which I don't know about you, but this story has always kind of bewildered me. It's such a strange story. Let's dive into it. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. On the third day, there was a wedding at Canaan in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with the disciples, 
And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. So Jesus and his mother and his disciples, remember Jesus has just started his kind of public ministry, are at a wedding. So this is presumably a family friend. Maybe a, maybe a distant relative. But, but that fact that Jesus' mother was there and that he was there and Jesus took the time to actually go to this wedding, you know, he started his public ministry, somewhat important person to him and to his family. We could assume that. It is also presumably that, uh, that Jesus' mother, Mary, is actually involved in helping in some way in this capacity. That, so it's a close family friend or a relative because why else would she bring this concern that they have no wine? She's probably helping the groom and his family serve and make sure the right provisions as was custom so family friends and relatives and particularly women though those family friends would help out at the wedding it's one of the other things is that these weddings uh, actually usually the ceremonies these celebrations actually go on for a week right and they, they know how to party they don't have a good time to celebrate a, a, a wedding right so they they typically last a week and right at the beginning of these celebrations the best wine is served so as you go throughout the week uh, the cheaper wine is served and one of the reasons is that is that maybe people are more inebriated more people like oh that's the, it's the expectation that this is what's going to happen If there were provisions failed, if, if the wine ran out, if, if the party wasn't exuberant enough or extravagant enough or enough provisions provided for the guest, the bride's family could sue the groom and his family. And the, you think, I think that's funny, because, but the issue of hospitality was so important in their culture that there was an expectation that this was part of the gift to the family and friends for this party. And so it was the groom's responsibility and his family to provide all these things and all the wine and all the food for this week. So this is a big deal. So why does Mary bring this issue to Jesus? I mean, we, right, presumably she's helping out, so she knows that, and that there's a little crisis, the wine has run out, right? And we're like, uh-oh, big deal. Why does she bring it to Jesus? Does she anticipate that Jesus is going to perform a miracle? Right? She knows who Jesus is. Right? She knew from the beginning. Does she bring this to Jesus because she knows that Jesus is going to perform a miracle and that he's going to take care of all this? I'm going to say quite clearly, no. That is not an expectation of Mary. She would have no hint of that because up until this moment, he has never performed a miracle or as John says, a sign. It says it right here in this text. This is his first sign, and John calls all the miracle signs. We'll get to that later. There would have been no expectation for her to think, ah, well, Jesus will provide more wine. He'll solve this problem. The other thing, here's the other reason why she might go to him. She goes to Jesus because he's the eldest son. He's 30 years old. As the eldest son, Mary is a widow at this point. Jesus would have provided for her. He would have been the, the man of the house. He would have provided for his mother. He worked as a carpenter. And presumably, we can assume that Jesus showed himself to be reliable and trustworthy to Mary. So in times of crisis and times of issue at home or whatever, he's like, you know what? You know who I can rely on to in this moment? I can rely on Jesus. 
You know, normally it would have been Joseph. But I can rely on Jesus. Mary has learned to trust and to rely on Jesus. Just because he was a reliable and trustworthy man. He was dependable. But notice, notice what Jesus responds to her. And Jesus has a way out in the gospel is always transcending the question. Right? A person comes to him and they have a question and it's kind of a straightforward question and Jesus answers a different question or like interprets it in such more spiritual way and they're, like, and they're left like, what? What's, what's going on? What just happened? And I think this is one of that moments because Jesus said, look, at Mary goes to Jesus, they have no wine. Like, Jesus, I need to trust. Help, help me with this. I don't know what to do. Can you help me with this? This, this is the assumption that Mary is coming with Jesus. And Jesus responds to her says, Woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. What does this have to do with wine? I'm just looking for help in this moment. What are you talking about? And one of the strange things about this, and I know in the English, it sounds really rude. This word woman. Like, you and I would never address our mother in that way. Never. So try it and see what happens. Right? Just don't, I mean, just, in fact, don't try it. Don't, don't do it. But what I'm going to also say is that this is also, the, the word that he uses here is a word that an adult or a child would never address their mother as well. So it's not as rude as we think, but it's also a way they would never address. It's, it's kind of a word, this, isn't, this is not the great analogy for this word, but it's kind of a word like ma'am. Ma'am is a very a, a polite word to say to an adult woman, right? And in the South, some children would say that to their mom. But this word is a word you would never say to your mom, right? Even though it's polite to other women, you would never address your mother in this way. And this is how Jesus addresses his mother. In fact, it is the way that he addresses Mary throughout every gospel. He never addresses her in the way that a child would address his mother in a proper way. It's polite, but it's never the way he addresses. In fact, right, the next time he says woman to Mary, it's at the cross. Right? In John 19, 26, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And what is he doing in that moment for Mary? He's, care- he's providing for her because he's proven all his life that he is trustworthy, he is dependable, and he provides for his mother. But he doesn't address her as mother. Particularly now in his public ministry. Why is that? Why does Jesus not address his mother? Jesus only has one true parent, and he's trying to make that very clear. That he only does the will, not of his earthly mother, but he does the will of his father. He does the will of his father. He's he's not subject to human wishes, to human wills, to human schedules, but he is subject to the divine will. Period. John emphasized this over and over again. John chapter... 5 verse 30. Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Mm. 
Can you say that about yourself? I mean, who sent you? It's Jesus. Do, do, are you subject to your own will, to other human wills, to other human schedules? Or are you subject to the divine will of the one who sent you? Are your priorities in your life yours? Or they're his? Because if they're not his, you're not following Jesus. You're not following his model. You're not following what he sent you to do. It's so easy to get wrapped up in our own wills or other wills or other schedules or other desires or other people's wishes and wants. And Jesus, right in this moment, in this moment, his mother says, they have no wine. I need you. I need to depend on you. We need to do something. We need to help this family out. They're in trouble. And Jesus says, look at, what does this have to do with me? I'm not subject to your will. I'm not subject to your schedule. I'm not subject to all these things. My hour has not yet come. This has nothing to do with me. My hour has not come yet. This is, once again, if you look through the Gospel of John and all the Gospels, this term hour is used over and over again. And of course, it's focused on the hour of his glory, right? It's focused on the cross. It's focused on the manifestation of who he is and what he's come to accomplish. He says, my hour has not come. My teaching ministry has, has begun. I've started my public ministry. But, but Jesus is focused right in this moment. He is focused on his journey to the cross that he has a purpose to accomplish. And you can remember, right, what did they just ask him the previous thing? The previous verses they asked him. They asked Jesus, who are you? What's your purpose? What have you come to do? Where have you come from and where are you going? And Jesus is already modeling right here. Look at, I am God and my purpose is the cross and that's where I'm marching to. My hour has not yet come. It is not here and it is not now. It is to come. And that's where we're going. That hour is the cross and his sacrifice. Jesus' verbal teaching corresponds with and connected to the way he lives and he models it out with his action. John 7.30 So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. That's repeated often. His hour had not yet come. Right? The humans' wills and authorities were thwarted in those moments because his hour had not yet come. Jesus is finally arrested. Not because human wills and authority, but because it's his will to be arrested and it's his will to die on the cross. He is in control. In John 12, 23, and Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now hold on to that thought, right? I, I started with this top thought about being glorified, right? Jesus says, like, the hour has not come for me to be glorified. The purpose of this sign was for Jesus to be glorified. In the Gospel of John, you can really separate it out into two sections, right? The first 11 or so chapters are really the, the, what we call the book of signs. It goes through Jesus' public ministry and then miracle or sign after sign after sign for a purpose. And then after John 12, John 12 switches, it's, to, it's, the, it's the passion. It's this long story of the passion of Christ, of his sacrifice, which is a sign, by the way. I want you to understand in this moment 
When Jesus says, woman, what does this have to do with me? He's rebuking Mary. He's, re- he's rebuking his mother. It says, what are you doing coming to me? Why are you asking me this? You know who I am. You know my purpose. Although I don't think she knew it in full. He is rebuking his mother publicly. John 2.5. Notice how his mother responds. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now this is not a, this is not a statement that says, look it, he's going to take care of it. Right? It's not one of those kind of passive-aggressive moments. Yeah, yeah, Jesus. And servants, do whatever he's saying. He's going to take care of this, right? This is not that moment. This is a very tender moment. In fact, this is the greatest advice any human has given any ever human. She says that moment, after she has rebuked by Jesus, she says to the servants, look at, I don't know. I don't know what he's going to do. I don't know if he's going to take care of this wine. I don't know if he's not going to take care of the wine. I don't know if he's going to take care of this circumstances. I don't know if he's going to solve this moment. But do whatever he tells you to do. I mean, that is incredible advice. Can we just like, end this sermon right now and just sit with that? Right, like, I'm going to just tell you, hey, I don't know if Jesus is going to solve your crisis or your circumstance or your moment or your life. But do whatever he tells you. You see, in the midst of that, that is a confession of faith. That is a confession of trust. I trust him. And I don't know what he's going to do in that moment. I don't know if he's going to solve it. But trust him. Have faith in him. This is an incredible confession of faith. It is an act of faith. She doesn't sulk. She doesn't complain. She just turns to the servants, do whatever he says. I trust and I depend on him. Whatever he does, it's wise. It's right. It's righteous. Do whatever he says. He's in charge. He's in charge and he knows best. She initially approaches Jesus as a mother. She's rebuked. And then she approaches him as a believer. I trust him. I believe in him. I don't know what he's going to do. I don't know how he's going to solve it. But I trust him. There are several times... There are several times when Jesus comes and someone asks him to perform a miracle... To, to something for him, for them. And Jesus denies him. So, I'm going to do that. And then they respond with an act of faith, a confession of faith, and then Jesus reverses it. It's not all the time, but there's a few times that this happens, and this is one of those moments. Jesus is interested, I'm, I'm not solving this problem. And even in the midst of this, he doesn't tell her, I'm going to solve this problem. He just makes a divine will, like, okay. All right. I'm going to do something here. I'm going to sue something here. But you, I want you to understand here is that Jesus' goal is never to solve the, all these little problems. Right? When he performs the signs and the miracles, right, it is never for the sake of that healing or that provision. 
It's all pointless to him. And that's what he's saying at this moment. Like, what does this have to do in the big picture of things? This is meaningless. This is not my purpose. But in the midst of that, Mary says, I know, trust you. You are in charge. Whatever you say goes. And in the midst of some of those times when people confess that faith, he reverses the decision and provides the thing that we ask or the thing that we think we need. The difference is we don't approach Jesus with our demands. We approach him as Lord. And that's a gigantic thing. And so I, I, I also say it this way. We don't approach him as savior of our circumstances. We approach him as Lord, King of Kings, the one who's in charge. Period. Period. We don't approach him as Savior, and yes, he is Savior, but that's not fundamentally who he is. He is fundamentally King of Kings, Lord of the universe, and, and in charge. And I know that's a hard concept for us to get. Because this is not how you and I operate in this world, and particularly in America. We don't think of rulers and lords as universal and in charge. We live in a country where half of us don't recognize the president and don't honor him. Half of us don't recognize the president-elect and honor him because we think it's all temporal. We think it's our ability to give someone the ability to be in charge. Because the reality, we think we're in charge. We think we're kings, we're Lord. We wouldn't say that, but that's how we act. We believe authority begins and ends with us. Well, this is a fundamental fact. It does not. It begins and ends with him. Period. And he is Lord whether you recognize it or not. He is author and creator of this universe, sustainer of all things at all moments, whether you recognize it or not. That is who he is. Our relationship to Jesus is this. Jesus is Lord. That's our relationship with him. He is Lord and he is king. Our relationship to Jesus is not he is savior. He is. But that is because he is Lord that he has the ability to save. He doesn't say, hey, come relate to me as Savior. No, he says, come and bend at knee and relate to me as your master, as God. Too many times, right? The, I mean, I mean, I, if the gospel of Jesus, do anyone know what the good news that Jesus preaches? What is the good news Jesus preaches? This is not a, this is not a hard test. What is it? No, it's repent. Repent. The kingdom of God is here. Look at Jesus says, repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. This is the good news that he says, you know what? This is the most important thing I need to tell everyone. The kingdom of God is at hand. Why? Because the king is at hand. He is present. He doesn't say, hey, the good news I'm going to die for your sins and be resurrected and give you eternal life. That is good news. That's part of it. But it's not the good news that he brings. The good news that he brings is, hey, I'm Lord. I'm king, and the kingdom is here. 
all these emperors, all these empires and nations, they will crumble and they will fall. But the eternal kingdom is here and the eternal king is here. That is the good news. Hear it clearly. The fundamental confession of a Christian is Jesus is Lord. That is the first confession and that is the final confession. Jesus is Lord and he is king. I mean, it says it quite clearly in Romans 10, 19, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart, your God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. That's it. It's not if you confess that he's Savior. He is. But that's not the good news. That's just the outcome of the good news. Too many times in the evangelical church, right? The the good news started in the early church quite clear with Jesus that the kingdom is at hand. It's here. It's present. You may think Rome is in charge. You may think the king of Israel is, but it is Jesus is Lord throughout all times, right? And our church has changed it to uh, the evangelical church in the modern world is is the good news is Jesus is a miracle worker. Look what Jesus does for you. He loves you and he died for you and he gave you eternal life. And then it just even transforms. Look at, do you want to go to heaven or hell? And that's, that's the good news. It's the destination. That's the byproduct of the good news. It is not the good news. It is not the message of Jesus. It is not the gospel. I mean, in the midst of this, this morphing and distorting of the good news, Jesus almost becomes irrelevant in this. And so we approach them. A prosperity gospel preacher preaching, but just even evangelicals, Christians, we approach him. What can you do for me? Can you solve my circumstance? Can you solve my moment? Instead of just approaching Jesus on bended knee and recognizing that he is Lord. Soren Kierkegaard said this, Christ turned water into wine. But the church has succeeded in doing something more difficult. It has turned wine into water. Because we have taken the message of Jesus. We've taken this concept, this incredible news, this revealing that Jesus is Lord, that the King is present, and he's revealing himself to you, and we've just sorted to, hey, he's Savior. I don't mean to diminish what he's done for us and his salvation for us. I'm not diminishing that at all. But the good news is Jesus is Lord. It's better one day knowing that than a thousand. One day in his courts of judgment knowing that he is Lord than a thousand elsewhere not knowing that fact. That's the good news. Savior is a, is a byproduct of Jesus being Lord. It is, it, is, it is the outcome of him being Lord. It is the, it's what proceeds from him being Lord, his salvation for us. The act of our faith, the act of our belief in him being Lord is this. I'll do what he says. I'll do what he says, no matter what he says, no matter how hard it is, no matter what circumstance I am, I will follow him. He is my Lord.
by saying Jesus Lord and accompanied by acting, by living that out. Philippians 2, 10 through 11. So that every name of Jesus, so at that name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on an earth, under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In this response, Mary says, do whatever he says. Mary is saying, Jesus is Lord. She reverses course, not seeing Jesus as Savior in this moment, but saying, he is Lord in this moment. Not saying that, hey, I know he's going to fix this circumstance. He's going to save this situation. He's going to save this circumstance. He's going to save the bride. He's going mean, to save the groom. But she sees this moment. Do what he says. And she trusts him as Jesus as Lord. Do whatever he says and trust him. He has every moment of your life. Every moment of your life. And then, in the midst of all that, in that conviction, in the midst of that, because this is an extravagant uh, giving God in the abundance of that, Jesus performs this amazing gift and this amazing sign to reveal, this is the point, he does this to reveal what Mary has confessed, that he is Lord. That he is Lord. He's Lord of Mary. He's Lord of the wine. He's Lord of life. He's Lord of everything. And then he turns water to wine. He turns water to wine. This is an extravagant gift. All right, we, we're told uh, there's 20 to 30 gallons of each of these stone jars. Let's just be generous and say there's 30 gallons per stone jar, right? That, that, for each stone jar, 30 gallons, that's 150 wine bottles in modern day terms. 150 wine bottles. So six stone jars is 900 bottles of wine. That's a lot of bottles of wine. Right. Wine in a box, right? What does it cost? Like $5 wine in a box? I don't know. I don't drink wine. I don't drink, I don't, right? I don't think, right, this, is, this was considered the best wine. Like, like, this is the best wine we've ever had, right? This, so this is not wine in a box, right? I assume wine in a box is not fantastic, right? Most wine sold in America is sold under uh, $15, is what Shark Tank tells me. So I believe it, right? Uh, but wine, can, really good wine, can average rate. It could be $50 to $150 to $200. It could be really expensive, right? Really good wine, right? Depending on your taste of wine. But the most expensive bottle of wine ever sold was a 73-year-old bottle of French Burgundy in 2018. And it sold for $558,000. That's a crazy amount for one bottle of wine. I assume they probably haven't opened it up because it costs so much, right? I, I have no idea why we would do that. But let's just take, like, this is the most extravagant gift, right? And Jesus has the best wine, right? Because he is the author and Lord of all wines, right? So 900 bottles of that, that is about a half billion dollars that this gift is that he would have given this family and to this groom, right? The point of all of this is this is an absurd, extravagant, abundant gift, But the purpose of Jesus' sign is not to say, look at how he gives, or look at the abundance of his gift, or look at how he provides for this couple. That's not the purpose of his signs. The purpose of his signs is not, look, oh, 
He provides that person to see or he provides that person to walk. I don't want to diminish that at all. Or he provides temporary life. I mean, he resurrects Lazarus and the child, right? And gives them temporary life again. The purpose of all those signs, John 2, 11, he tells it here. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. The purpose of all the signs is to manifest who he is. The manifest his glory, which, by the way, is the good news. And his disciples believed him. John goes even further to say this, right? He says the purpose of all the signs in the gospel, the purpose of all the gifts, all the healings, is to show and reveal that he is Lord and that he is God. John 20, verses 30 through 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Signs are to manifest his glory. Signs are to manifest who he is. Period. The ultimate expression, the ultimate sign, the ultimate expression of his glory on earth is the cross and resurrection. I want you to hear that very clearly. I just said the cross and resurrection are a sign. It's not the good news. It's part of the good news. But it's not the good news. It is a sign that points to his glory, to who he is, which is the good news. What Jesus does, this is really important, what Jesus does always points to who he is, which is the good news. He is Lord. He is King. He is God. This extravagant gift of wine foreshadows the extravagant, even more extravagant gift of the cross. I want you to see that, right? This, the wine points to the even more extravagant sign of the cross, which is even more extravagant gift then wine, right? More, it's worth more than a half billion dollars. It's priceless, this gift of life everlasting, which is more than life everlasting. The wine points to a messianic banquet. It points to a different wedding, right? The gift of the wine, it points to our wedding, to our groom, Jesus, and we are his bride. And Joel 3.18, this, this theme of wine in the Old Testament is Perpetuate in this messianic banquet this is highlighted here. And in that day, the mountain shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water. And a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord, and the water of the valley of Shittim. And Isaiah 25, 6, On this mountain of the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a rich food full of marrow, of Aged wine, well refined. Now, do you get? The, I mean, the point is, wine is associated with this abundant feast, this messianic banquet. Now, for me, a better metaphor would have been bacon, right? But for that culture and for many people, it's wine, right? And bacon would have been a terrible metaphor for them, right? But just the point is that it's abundant provision at the real wedding. The failure of the groom to provide adequate provisions at this wedding just highlights 
the complete provision of the true bridegroom and the true marriage. So Jesus has to step in and fix his provisions, right? Hint, hint. Jesus has to step in and fix your lack of providing. Because here's, a, here's another fundamental fact. You do not provide. You do not provide for your family, period. For a lot of men, that might be hard to hear. You do not provide for your family. God does. God does. The real bridegroom provides. Revelation 19.7 Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made her, herself ready. Jesus has come not to just give us wine. right? He's come to give us life. Life in abundance, right? This, this John 10.10, 10, right? I came that you may have life, you that may have it in abundance, overflowing life. The cross and the resurrection is not the gift, though. It's the sign. I mean, it's, it's, it's the byproduct of the gift. But the gift is this. What Jesus is trying to accomplish is restored relationship with us so that we can come before and be with our Lord. We can be in the presence of God. We can have a relationship with him. That is your salvation. The cross is the means to the ends, which is restored relationship, which we cannot accomplish. That is the good news. And the reason the cross can happen is because he's Lord. He's Lord, period. The cross is an extravagant gift. But the real gift, the real sign, it points to who Jesus, the real gift is who Jesus is. And all the signs, all of them point to the gift. Him. He is the gift. He is the giver and he is the gift. The cross is not the gift. It's the means to the gift. The gift that he is Lord, that he is King, that he is God. Yes, he is Savior, but first and foremost, he is Lord, and that's the only way he can be your Savior. The extravagant gift isn't to remove the wrath of God that we so deserve. But it it is. It has to happen. But he is the gift. Being in with him, knowing him. The gift is being an internal relationship with him, Jesus, who is Lord, forever and ever, and that we get to know him intimately. Intimately. The gift that you can give your kids, and this may seem really weird, is not removing, is not the removing or, or, or grace or, or, or having forgiveness for them or discipline. The, the gift is about being in a trusting relationship and loving relationship with them. The gift is giving them yourself. That you can trust me. That I love you no matter what. That's the gift. How you get there, there's lots of ways. You can only get there through the grace of God. But that's the gift. That's what every kid wants. To have a a trustworthy parent. Not perfect. They already know you're not perfect trustworthy parent that loves them. And that's what our Father does for us. 
a trustworthy Lord, a trustworthy God that lets us be in intimate relationship with him in which he extravagantly loves us and shows us with all the signs in our life, with all the provisions in our life. Sinner, broken soul, I know you're that because that's who I am. Don't mistake the gift that Jesus has given you. Don't ignore this gift. Don't come to Jesus with all your needs and all your wish lists. He knows all your needs. And he knows all the wish lists you have. And he knows what you really need, which is him. And he's providing himself. He's provided himself and he's providing himself. Don't come to him and say, hey, I need a savior. I need you to fix this circumstance. I need a provider. Look, he knows that. I mean, it's okay to do that, but he knows that. Broken soul, would you come to Jesus on bended knee and worship him? Worship him as king and Lord and know that he is the extravagant gift. And he is saying, You can know me, and I know you. Can you you come to him and be in that relationship? To be known eternally? That is salvation. That is salvation. John 17.3 said this, and this is the eternal life. He says this to the Father, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Turn your heart, bend your knee today and accept the gift that Jesus is Lord. Repent, believe, know him and know that you are known. Celebrate that gift of relationship which is your salvation. Water to wine to Lord to Lord. Do what he says. Do what he says. Rejoice that extravagant gift of himself, that Jesus is Lord. Let's pray. Gracious Father, I don't know what to say, but thank you. I don't know what to say, but Lord, help me to follow you. Help me to come and see and do what you say. Help me to understand that you are Lord and I am not. Lord, help us to proclaim this truth, your presence, the proof of your kingship, proclaim the truth of your lordship. Help us to live that out so people see it. So people see and know that we know you are Lord. Lord, help us to live out those, the fruits of the Spirit that you have given us to proclaim your truth. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.